Father, we pray that you be pleased to help us as we look tonight at the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the Word, prayer, baptism, Lord's Supper, singing, fellowship, which we've already looked at. But our Father, we pray that you'd help us as we build on that foundation with the expectation and the prayer that the Word of God would run swiftly amongst us as it goes forth. Bless even as we sing this hymn together. We do thank you for the sending of your Son and His coming to rescue us from our sin. So we ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Teaching tonight builds on what we did Sunday morning in Sunday school. I know that many of you are not able to be in Sunday school, but um, we'll review, well, I'll take about 30 seconds in one of the PowerPoints to review what we did Sunday, and we'll move on. We ended with this slide, which was an illustration of fellowship. Maybe you recognize some of the people there, but that was the uh, packing of the, the Christmas shoe boxes that many participated in. And we said one of the ways that we fellowship is in giving and helping others as well as conversing with one another. So I just wanted to show you that's the last slide from last week. Now, we're talking tonight about the ordinary means of grace and revival. 
And we're going to start, first of all, by looking at some examples. Actually, I'm only going to be looking at one example from the New Testament. There are three that I could have chosen. I did not choose Pentecost, not because it's not important, not because it wasn't a revival, but um, I decided to, to choose an example of revival in one of the church plants that Paul did. And there were two church plants where we know from what the Bible says that revival actually happened at the very beginning of the church plant. Um, because we have this term, large crowd or large multitude of people uh, that uh, were converted initially when Paul went to two different cities. Acts 14.1, one was Iconium. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of Jews and the Greeks, believed. And then also at Thessalonica. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Those are the only two church plants where that language is used in the New Testament. You don't have to believe me. Take your concordance and research it at home. If I'm wrong, I'll repent. And then um, there's, um, yeah, here's the word. The word's great multitude. That's used 27 times in the New Testament. They translate two different Greek words that are really synonyms. The words mean a large number as opposed to just a few people. We're still looking at examples from the New Testament. We want to define revival to begin with. And this definition I take from the book Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray, Banner of Truth, Publication 94. Um, the, um, Murray has a succinct comment which I think is very helpful. He says, what happens in revivals is not to be seen as something miraculously different from the regular experience of the church. The difference lies in the decree, not the kind. In an outpouring of the Spirit, spiritual influence is more widespread, convictions are deeper, and feelings more intense. But all this is only a heightening of normal Christianity. And I want to emphasize this especially. Uh, I won't have time tonight to talk about what in recent months and years has been described as revival. I doubt very much whether it was revival. We can talk about that another time. But revival is not anything different from what happens in our regular church services, except things are heightened. That's what Maria is saying. And we hope to be able to demonstrate that biblically and historically. What are the ordinary means of grace? This is last week's review. This is what we covered. And it's in these using these ordinary means of grace that God uses these to strengthen, birth, and grow His people. Uh, we find the answer to this in our confession of faith. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe uh, to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. The reason that I highlighted in bold other means is because 
There are other means that are ordained by God. And we looked at a couple of the other means last Lord's Day. Word of God, which is mentioned in the confession. Prayer. Baptism. The Lord's Supper. Then we looked at singing. Singing is a means of grace. It's commanded twice. Colossians and Ephesians both. And also fellowship, which we dealt with. Now, that was last Sunday. That's my review. Now we move on. The ordinary means of grace in revival. Examples in the New Testament. Uh, revival is vividly explained by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 2, 1 and verse 13. And I'm going to read that in your hearing. And you may wish to follow along if you'd like. That would be wonderful if you'd like to do that. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. Now, remember, Thessalonica was one of the two places where it's specifically stated that when Paul preached, there was a large crowd that was converted in his initial ministry. Thessalonica was one. Iconium was the other. But listen what Paul says to this church, starting in verse 5. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, it's not that this kind of thing didn't happen in other places. But it was an unusual movement of the Spirit in Thessalonica. So that we're told this large crowd, this happened to them all at once suddenly. And Paul wasn't that long in Thessalonica, as you'll recall. But this is what God did in that place. Um, the um, <clears throat> What happened as Paul preached? Well, we find that the word came with power and much assurance. Verses 5 and 6. To a great multitude, the word was received with joy. The church became noted for its evangelism in verses 8 and 9. He said, we don't need to tell anybody. Everybody knows what's happened among you. You can't keep it to yourselves. It is just spreading all over so that the other churches know and many others know as well. And then the word was received as the word of God, not merely as the word of man. And Paul highlights that in verse 13 of chapter 2 where we read these words. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And remember, this happened to a great multitude all at once. That's why I would designate Thessalonica as a revival. What happened in other places of Paul preached, the same kind of thing, 
But in Thessalonica and Iconium, it happened to such a great number of people all at once. Well, ordinary means of grace and revival, examples in the New Testament. One of the things we should learn from this is that we should pray for revival as a church. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. Now, the reason I'm quoting from the Legacy Standard Bible is because I believe it has the most accurate translation. The New King James is good, but it uses a present tense where a, um, um, where a past tense should have been used, in my opinion. Now, that's, that's just my opinion. But the Legacy Standard Bible translates it that way, so I, I, I highlight this. Second um, Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly. Now, I've highlighted that word spread rapidly because we're going to look at that. That's just one word. But it's translated consistently in every translation that I looked at. Not all of them, of course. But everyone I looked at has always used two words. Spread rapidly and be glorified. And then I highlighted this. Just as it did also with you. So what Paul is saying, I want you to pray that what happened to you at Thessalonica, when all these people were converted, this large crowd all at once, I want you to pray that the same thing will happen in other places that I preach, just like it happened with you. I want to see it again. That's what Paul is saying. I just want to see it again. And that we may be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Other translations spread rapidly. The New King James translates it, runs swiftly. The ESV, speed ahead. The KJV, free course. Now, the Greek word um, is defined by fair, and I'm using uh, Greek lexicons, dictionaries, in other words. And, and fair is a standard Greek lexicon or dictionary. He says it means to run of a person in haste. Mounts, another Greek dictionary, says this word means to run to progress freely, to advance rapidly. Arndt and Gingrich, they say this in Romans 9.16, exert oneself to the limit of one's powers in an attempt to go forward, strive to advance. In 2 Thessalonians 3.1, proceed quickly and without hindrance. There's one more definition that... Um, <clears throat> of this Greek word translated spread rapidly, speed ahead, run swiftly, and free course that I want to highlight. And that's from Laonida. And they, they, they give this meaning to it. To run with emphasis upon relative speed in contrast with walking. To run, to rush. How many of you are walkers? How many of you are runners? Is there a difference between walking and running? Well, of course. And so you see what Paul is saying is, I want you to pray that the Word of God will run. Walking is good. It's best for your health. And when you get older, that's what you do. You walk. You don't run anymore. But when you're young, you run. Except for Marv. He's always running, as we know. Um, but um, it, it's to run. So I think a great illustration is the use of this same word in, in Luke fifteen twenty. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The prodigal son returning. And I just have this picture in my mind, if they wore robes like everyone pictures they do, 
And the father seeing his son tying that robe up, robe up and running like a young man to go to his son and embrace him. Running, running. Well, that's the word that Paul uses. He says, I want you to pray that the word will run speedily and quickly. That was how he wanted the church at Thessalonica to pray. As it, he says, you know what happened with you? I want that to happen every place where I preach the word of God. Well, we could look at Iconium, we could look at Pentecost, but I, uh, there's a time limit always, isn't there? And what I want to do is give some historical examples. Are there any historical examples of the Word of God running speedily, quickly, in history, after the book of Acts? And there are a number of them. Um, and uh, we, we could look at uh, any number, but we're, I've, I've selected to look at... Um, the Second Great Awakening. And the reason I'm looking at the Second Great Awakening is because of the nature of the Second Great Awakening, at least in its beginnings. Now, it was hijacked, and we're going to talk about how it was hijacked later on, but initially, uh, the Second Great Awakening was, um, I, I would term it the quiet revival. But nonetheless, it was a very, very significant revival, and it lasted for 25 years. Uh, there's not been that much written about the Second Great Awakening. Uh, Eon Murray in his book, Revival and Revivalism, has changed that uh, in 1994 when he published that volume. It's a very helpful volume. But I'm taking the examples from Eon Murray's book, the make, uh, Revival and Revivalism, The Making and Marring of American evangelicalism. The making and marring. Both things are true. It's the making of evangelicalism. It was the marring of evangelicalism. And so there is something for us to learn and long for, and there's something for us to avoid that also happened during this second great awakening. So, um, as I said, it lasted for 25 years. And I'm going to be reading to you. Now, there's always a danger in reading to you because I could put you to sleep. I'll try not to do that. Uh, but I do want to read to you. And it'd probably be better if I had the lights at this point. I read uh, since I'm reading. So if you could thank you. Boy, I just say it and they come on. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, but I want to read to you uh, several um, sections about the Second Great Awakening so that you get some flavor as to what it was like in those years. And first is from page 129. Um, Thus, what characterizes the revival is not the employment of unusual or special means, but rather the extraordinary degree of blessing attending the normal means of grace. And that's what I've been trying to emphasize. Nothing unusual, just the normal means of grace, which we looked at last Sunday, which I highlighted for you briefly in that one slide. There were no unusual evangelistic meetings, no special arrangements, no announcements of pending revivals. Pastors were simply continuing in the services they had conducted for many years when the great change began. That is why so many of them could say, the first appearance of the work was sudden and unexpected. On the subject of means, something needs to be said, more particularly on prayer. 
As with the truth that is preached, prayer has no inherent power in itself. But prayer that throws believers in heartfelt need on God with true concern for the salvation of sinners will not go unanswered. And where such a spirit of prayer exists, it is a sign that God is already intervening in advance to His cause. Uh, perhaps some of you have read about the prayer revival in New York City in 1859. Have you read about that? Are you familiar with that prayer revival? I know some of you are. Um, it was an amazing work of God. But we don't have time to talk about that one. But you look it up and you can, you, 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 you can read that on your own. But that prayer revival in New York City was started with, well, I'm talking too much because I won't get done. Um, let's talk about some observations from the Second Great Awakening. First of all, prayer by local congregations and united prayer among churches preceded this revival. Believers were filled with wonder and joy and renewed energy. And on page 131, I'll read you an indication of that. The second general observation. First was prayer. Second, to be noted is the unprecedented upsurge of evangelical and interdenominational activity which resulted from the Second Great Awakening. Narratives of revivals tend to concentrate on the people converted, but every true revival begins in the church, and a proof of the genuineness of the work is that it does not leave believers where they were before. They, were, they are filled with new wonder, joy, and praise, with a new sense of the privilege of serving God, and with renewed energy that comes from being constrained by the love of Christ." So it not only affects, there's not only prayer, but it affects the believers. So there's this heightened love and desire of wonder and joy amongst believers. Um, and then revival included this second great awakening, it included uh, old colleges, new colleges, the uneducated, uh, people of all ages. And um, we see this on page 132, that I'll go back to here in just a second. A third general observation re relates to the colleges, both old and new. The revivals, far from being merely emotional events, which influenced the uneducated, made a profound impression on almost all the main centers of learning. And we'll be giving some illustrations of that as to what happened at Yale, what happened at Princeton, what happened at Amherst. Uh, those schools were very positively uh, influenced by the, by the revival. And then there was an unusual sense of the presence of God. And I'm going to read sections from page 147 and following. A final general observation, Murray says, arising out of this period, has to do with the manner in which the unusual sense of the presence of God was recognized in the churches which experienced these revivals. It was not because men saw weeping multitudes, unrestrained noise, and high excitement that they believed that a revival had begun. Notice this, this wasn't it. That's, that wasn't how they knew a revival came. On the contrary, such things which are sometimes supposed to be of the essence of revival, were almost entirely absent in the Northeast during the greater part of the Second Great Awakening. The presence of God and the measure of His working was not judged by such things, but rather by the deep impression made on people by the power of divine truth. 
Far from aiming at stirring excitement, the preachers sought to avoid it. It was their object, indeed, to make deep impressions on the hearts of sinners, observed Porter, but to do this only by means of the truth. Accordingly, the whole tendency of things was to produce exercises of the calm, solemn, pungent kind, rather than passionate and clamorous excitement. Now, I think that especially needs to be emphasized in our day because if you, as I, whenever I hear news of a possible revival, I try to find out everything I possibly can about it because I want revival. But what I've seen is not, uh, well, I, I just don't think it's revival. The emphasis is on excitement, emotion. Ah, but there's my, but but but, but the, uh, revival comes out of the use of the ordinary means of grace that God uses in an extraordinary way. Well, going on, congregations were then awed and subdued, and it was often the degree of silence and stillness more than anything else which showed that a new day had come. There are unanimous testimonies to this from the many eyewitnesses who left records. The Reverend Jeremiah Hollick reported what happened in his congregation in West Simsbury, Connecticut, 1798 and 99. Now notice, this was um, two years before what is normally thought of as the Second Great Awakening began. But listen to what this, what, what this man says, Reverend Hollick. The solemnity of this season cannot be communicated. It can only be known by experience. The work was by no means noisy, but rational, deep, and still. Poor sinners began to see that everything in the Bible was true, that they were wholly sinful and in the hand of a sovereign God. The first you would know of a person's under-awakening was that they would be at all the regular religious meetings and manifest a silent and eager attention. Isn't that amazing? And then listen to what Reverend... John P. Preston of Rupert, Vermont wrote, Our prayer meetings were crowded and solemn to an amazing degree. No emotion more violent than shedding of tears and no appearance of wildness and disorder occurred. Nothing appeared but a silent, fixed attention and profound solemnity, the most resembling my idea of the day of judgment of any scene. I ever witnessed infidelity retired or was overcome by the bright manifestations of divine power and grace. And Murray goes on, that's Murray goes on to say that the young were affected in this manner in the same way as the old is clear from the record of many instances of revival in colleges. A student who was converted at Amherst during the presidency of Herman Humphrey described how the change in his life begin in these words. And I found this one most fascinating and interesting. Listen to this, this fellow. Typical college student, uninterested in the things of God. You'll see it as I read it. The first circumstance which attracted my attention was a sermon from President on the Sabbath. I do not know what the text and subject were, for according to my wicked habit, I have been asleep till near the end of its close. <laughs> Ooh, what an interested fellow in religion, right? 
You've been asleep. Well, he says, I seem to be awakened by a silence which pervaded the room, a deep solemn attention which seems to spread over an assembly when all are completely engrossed in some absorbing theme. I looked around, astonished. And the feeling of profound attention seemed to settle on myself. I looked toward the president and saw him calm and collected, but evidently most deeply um, interested in what he was saying. His whole soul engaged and his countenance beaming with an expression of eager earnestness which lighted up all his features and gave to his language unusual energy and power. What could this mean? I had never seen a speaker and his audience so engaged. He was making a most earnest appeal to prevent those who were destitute of religion themselves from doing anything to obstruct the progress of the revival which he hoped was approaching, or of doing anything to prevent the salvation of others even if they did not desire salvation for themselves. He besought them by all the interests of immortality and for the sake of themselves and of their companions to desist from hostilities against the work of God. The discourse closed and we dispersed, but many of us carried away the arrow in our hearts the gayest and hardiest trembled at the manifest approach of a sublime and unwanted influence in the aspect of the pious and a solemnity apparent in almost all, which forcibly impressed us with conviction that, in very deed, God was in this place. Well, um, Bennett Tyler gave an account of the experiences uh, in, at Yale in 1802. He says, a great change. Well, I better read the whole thing. <laughs> Here we go. In the spring, in the spring of, of 1802, while I was a sophomore, that great revival commenced at Yale College, to which reference has often been made, and which issued in the hopeful conversion of about 70 of the students. This revival commenced a few weeks before the spring vacation. I knew very little of it, however, at the time, as I was confined with the measles and as soon as I was able had gone home on account of the weakness of my eyes. I continued at home during the remainder of the term, owing to the sickness and death of my father. I did not return to college till one or two weeks after the commencement of the summer term. A great change had taken place during my absence. Many who were thoughtless when I last saw them, were now rejoicing in hope and others were deeply anxious for their souls. Meanwhile, I had been called to pass through a most affecting scene. My father had died in the triumph of his faith, his death, the funeral sermon which was preached on the following Sabbath, and the intelligence which I had received from college had made a deep impression on my mind. I returned to college. When I entered the college yard, an awful solemnity seemed to rest upon every object on which I cast my eyes. The buildings were solemn. The trees were solemn. The countenance of every individual whom I saw was solemn. How dreadful is this place was the exclamation which seemed naturally to force itself from me. I went into my room. On the table was a letter addressed to me from a classmate with whom I had been very close and whom I had left in a state of thoughtless security. His attention had been called up to the concerns of his soul 
and having heard of my affliction in the death of my father, he had written me a very affectionate letter urging upon me the immediate tension to the concerns of my soul. My roommate soon after came from his closet with a solemn, joyful countenance and told me that God had done for his souls since his, what he had, God had done since we had parted. My feelings at this time can be better imagined than described. Suffice it to say, an impression was now made upon my mind which was never effaced. I no longer halted between two opinions. And then in Princeton, in 1815, this account from Charles Pettit McElvey, he says, now this happened in 1815. He's writing about it 40 years later. He says, it was more than 40 years since I witnessed the revival of religion. It was in the college of which I was a student. It was powerful and pervading and fruitful in the conversion of young men to God, and it was quiet, unexcited, and entirely free from all devices of means beyond the few and simple which God has appointed, namely, prayer and the ministry of the Word, he says. It was not emotion, it goes on to say. It was prayer and the ministry of the Word. Murray makes a last observation. He says, on the manner in which God's presence was known is crucial to any assessment of this period of history. Too often modern writers have regarded the Second Great Awakening as though it were simply a movement of religious excitement. The first-hand accounts cannot be reconciled with that idea. It was not mere emotion that restored faith in the Bible and put an end to the advancement of unbelief. Murray says, so which is, of course, very true. So, um, Princeton, we've looked at that. Now, what revival is not? Revival is not necessarily marked by emotionalism, although there can be great emotion. The first great awakening, have you read uh, Jonathan Edwards? and the First Great Awakening, there was a good deal of emotion. And Edwards wrote a, um, well, well two, two treatises, really. The second one was Religious Affections. And Edwards argued that just because there were all these emotional outbursts, it did not mean that it was not revival. Now, did you catch that? That's the way Edwards thinks. It's not the way I think. It's the way Edwards thinks. And what has happened amongst some charismatics today, they have taken what Edwards has said and they've turned it on its head so that they say, if those things occur, then it is revival. You see the difference there? You're all intelligent. You see it immediately, don't you? You see it immediately. Well, in the First Great Awakening, there was this, there was this element of emotion that, as we shall see, came uh, at certain times in the Second Great Awakening as well. But I, I, the reason I wanted to emphasize the Second Great Awakening is because of the ordinary means of grace that were used and how it was that God used that. And it was not an outward emotional thing. It was great emotion, but it wasn't out of hand. It, we'll, we'll see in a moment it came that way. Um, we're going to look at some historical examples of revivals that became revivalism. There was a movement from the word to emotionalism. And this is what has happened in, in, in revivals, when, when supposedly rivals. When there's a movement from the Word of God, the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, 
to emotionalism, then the whole thing is hijacked, and um, which is um, unfortunate. Let me read to you. This is um, from Moses Hogue on 10 September 1801, reported the words of another minister in Kentucky. Yes, it did happen in Kentucky. Not everything that happened in Kentucky was bad. Okay? But there were some bad things that happened in Kentucky. In time of preaching, if care is taken, there is but little confusion. Let me stop there. In times of preaching, if care is taken, there is little confusion. I don't need to tell you that. We, we all go to Grace Reformed Baptist Church, don't we? And we know that we hear the Word of God, we value it, and um, we don't have confusion. But listen to what he says. When that is over, and the singing and praying and exhorting begins, the audience is thrown into what I would call disorder. The careless fall down, cry out, tremble, not infrequently are affected with convulsive twitchings. And that happened in some places. Is that revival? No. That, that, that is taking revival in a direction that is not biblical beyond the use of the ordinary means of grace. Um, 168 is where I'm to read next. So let's see if we can find that here. In general, camp meeting attempts at control were often abandoned. And this is what happened. The camp meetings came, there was these emotional outbursts, and they abandoned any effort to control the people. Because, you see, some were saying if you control the people, then you're, you're quenching the Spirit. No, you're not quenching the Spirit because the Spirit uses the ordinary means of grace in an extraordinary way. You see. Um, pages 171 and 172, Murray says... <clears throat> um, some of the disastrous results of this religious excitement were, first, a spirit of error, which led many, among whom were some Presbyterian ministers. Now, let, let, let me stop here. When, when he says Presbyterian ministers, he means these good old guys who held to the Westminster Confession of Faith, okay? Not the modern Presbyterianism or the modern Baptists, which deny all the fundamentals of the faith. No, 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 no. These were good guys. These were guys who held and believed the truth. But he's saying, the spirit of error which led among some who were Presbyterian ministers who had before maintained a good character fell far astray. A second, a spirit of schism. Considerable member, uh, a considerable number of the subjects and friends of the revival separated from the Presbyterian church and formed a new body which preached and published a very loose and erroneous system of theology. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Thirdly, a spirit of wild enthusiasm was enkindled under the influence of which at least three pastors of Presbyterian churches in Kentucky and some in Ohio went off and joined the Shakers. You know who the Shakers are? They are the Shakers. 
That's what they do in their services. They shake. Don't do it. <laughs> They're shaking. Husbands and wives who had lived happily together were separated and their children given up to be educated in the most enthusiastic society. So the thing was hijacked because there were those who did not control it. Hysteria. Hysteria was the shaft attending the awakening in Kentucky and such has been the attention drawn to it that it has tended to dominate all subsequent discussions. And generally, I think in the general religious evangelical uh, population, you'll find that if you, if you talk about the Second Great Awakening, they'll just talk about the aberrations and the way it went astray. But there was a genuine work of God for, for many, many years. Now, there was a man by the name of Charles Finney, who, um, who gave a theological argument that made the anxious seat and the altar call a necessary part of revival. Now, Charles Finney was ordained as a Presbyterian minister, supposedly adhering to the Westminster Confession of Faith. But he really didn't adhere to it at all. Um, he did not believe in original sin. He believed, uh, well, I should read it to you. Finney knew that for the most part his hearers, major obstacles to accepting the simple account of conversion was that they had been taught about the character of man's fallen nature. He said, that's the problem. Finney says, the problem is people have been taught that men are born in sin and that they can't do anything to come to God, that God has to do the work outside of them. No, he said. Everything is not regarding man's moral nature. It's his will. And if a man wills to do something, and if motives can be given to him to do something, then he will be saved in his genuine salvation. You've never heard that from this pulpit. I know you haven't. Because we believe with all of our hearts that man is dead in his trespasses and sin. And that it takes a mighty work of Almighty God and the Spirit of God to bring life into the soul and then the gift of faith is given and the person believes. And so when a person believes, we say, hallelujah. Why? Because they made a decision? No, because we know God has worked. God has worked. You see, that, that, that's the key. Well, I was going to read it, but I, I got to preaching instead. So there it is. But you can read about Finney and his theology here on these pages if you have the book. But there's another danger, as I conclude, that I want to... Um, talk about, that is discounting revival. It's possible to see what happened in the Second Great Awakening, how it was hijacked, and to discount, discount even the possibility of revival. And I know this, I'm going to quote from a book entitled, um, the. Um, I, well, I'll just read it. There's a danger of calling all revival emotionalism and or pietism. One writer says, Quotations. Like Lloyd-Jones before him, Murray has stated the problem well. And uh, what he's talking about there in context is Lloyd-Jones distinguished true and false revival. That's my comment in parentheses. In contrast to Lloyd-Jones and Murray, I contend, the author says, however, that both awakenings were subspecies of the same genus, the Q-I-R-E, now, QIRE is a theme of this entire book. The entire book is entitled Recovering Reformed 
the Reformed Confession. And QIRE stands for the Quest for Illegitimate Religious Experience. So the argument against revival is something like this. It says, the same writer says of George Whitfield, the moderate showmanship of George Whitfield, 1714 to 70, was really a prototype for Charles Finney's new measures. Dwight L. Moody's business-like approach and the outrageous stunts of Sister Amy, and I don't know who Sister Amy is, and Billy Sunday. That's also from the same book. I make my comment. I disagree strongly. George Whitfield was not a moderate showman. He was an orator who preached the gospel with power and multitudes came under conviction and were saved. Then another quotation from the book. Even in its most admirable form, the revivalist program is still misguided. Because as Packer, Lloyd-Jones, and Murray define revival, it is fundamentally the quest for a particular religious experience, the immediate encounter with God. And my comment, I disagree. Because revival, as properly understood, is not seeking an experience, but rather longing for the salvation of souls and for many souls to be saved. The religious experience may be and often is a byproduct of this desire, but it is not what is sought. If a man seeks peace, he may never find it. But if he seeks Christ, he finds peace as a byproduct. And so the experience may come as a byproduct. We don't seek an experience. Revival is not seeking an experience. Revival is, is, is relying on the ordinary means of grace and praying like the Apostle Paul tells us to pray, that the Word of God will run swiftly and that many will be saved. And so I call this a danger of discounting revival. No, we don't want to discount it, but we do want to carefully define it and box it within what the Bible teaches. We do want to do that, indeed. What applications can we make? Well, Do not think that the evidence of revival is emotional reactions, exhortations to confess sin, or much singing about Jesus. Much of what is counted as revival in recent years does not fit what the scriptures or history teach us. Pray for the extraordinary blessing of the Holy Spirit on the ordinary means of grace. Come every Sunday for the Word of God and prayer, baptism, the Lord's Supper, singing and fellowship, you see. Pray that the word of the Lord will run swiftly among us. Paul exhorted the Thessalonians to pray that this would be the case, so we need to do. And pray that we will delight in the um, regular, ordinary means of grace while we wait for greater blessing in these ordinary means of grace. And don't do anything to artificially bring it about. Just pray and wait and seek the Lord with all of our hearts. What he does, when he does it, how he does it, that's up to him. We do what we need to do in practicing the ordinary means of grace. Well, we have some announcements. Current state of Protestant churches of the USA in Rockford, and that's a big, Grant Kemmick's going to talk to us about that on Wednesday night, January 4th. And then um, next Wednesday, Lord willing, we're going to do the first half of the video revival put out by Reform Heritage Books. And this is narrated by Jeremy Walker. Men like, um, oh, let's see if I can remember the falls involved in it. Uh, 
uh, I was going to say Lloyd-Jones, not Lloyd-Jones because he's dead, but <clears throat> men, men of that caliber will be are, are in it. Um, Jeff Thomas, uh, Stuart Alliott, um, uh, Joel Beakey, and, and others are part of that DVD. It's, we'll only get about half of it next week. And then on Friday the 15th, second half at our home uh, at 7 p.m., and, and you can bring some finger food because we can talk and fellowship and eat afterwards if you'd like. Well, any questions that any of you have? I think I have just a few more minutes. If you have any questions or pushback, it'd be all right. I'm not always right. Seldom. But yes, Miss Chris. Yeah, and that's true. Edwards, um, Edwards did, did, did not say that just because of emotionalism they were, weren't really com- converted. In fact, he was arguing the, exactly the opposite. He's saying this does not mean that they weren't converted. Oh, there are always counterfeits. And that was his second book, he realized. The first one book was a narrative of surprising conversions, which he wrote in 1737 uh, after the 1734-35 revival. And then the the first great awakening is is usually 1741 to 43 or 44 something like that. And he wrote that with a more mature observation, and it's well worth reading. Uh, Jonathan Edwards' um, religious affections. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Oh, hello. Yes, I'm sure Pastor Al and Pastor Dale would take good care of that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, not uh, you, you notice one of the things that, uh, that I read was they said all efforts at control were abandoned. And you just can't abandon. And, and, and that's a false view, isn't it? To think that because someone is emotional. We live in a day that is controlled by emotions, do we not? And if somebody feels something and is emotional, it's just got to be true. I mean, they feel it so deeply. Hogwash. Doesn't mean that at all. Um, it can be controlled. Yes, Sandy? Come thou fount, yeah, yeah. And it says, come thou fount of every blessing. What's that fount? Who, who that is? That's the Holy Spirit of the Word of God. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, the fount is, that's right, Azahel Melton. You need to read the biography of Azahel Melton. It is just 
Great. And, and as a hell not understood what true revival was. You know what he would do? He would go to a town. He was in New York State. He would go to a town. He would preach the Word of God. Then he would leave. And God would work after he left. Finney did exactly the opposite. He'd go there and set up his tent or whatever he did and stay and stay and stay and create more and more emotion and get more and more converts. And you know what upstate New York is called? The Burnt Over District. To this day. It makes me weep. The theology of of a Finney still dominates large parts of upstate New York. Yes. I hope so, for his for the sake of his soul, because the doctrines he propounded were heretical. Well, one more question, then we're going to pray, and we'll. Our Father and our God, we pray that the Word of God would run swiftly amongst us and uh, that You'd be pleased to save souls. We thank You for what You are doing. We give You thanks and praise for what we've seen in recent months. Praise the Lord for this. We just want more. And uh, we pray that as You give us more, that that, uh, Your work would not be hijacked by the devil with wrong theology and a reliance on emotionalism rather than a reliance on your word, the ordinary means of grace and prayer and the Lord's Supper and baptism and singing and fellowship. Oh, Lord, help us, we pray. Thank you for what you did in history. We pray that you continue to work as we know you will, but we plead with you to work so that we can even see it in our own lifetime. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.